With the new year comes a search for a new podcast to add to your lineup, and I've got just the one. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast hosted by someone who knows all too well the pain that comes from losing a loved one by homicide. In 2018, host Kim lost her niece by homicide, and through this experience, she brings a deeper understanding of the life sentence a victim's family is forced to endure. You can hear her personal story on Season 1, Episodes 17 and 18. And you can find a million other choices wherever you are listening right now. And please be sure to leave Kim a little extra love when you check out her podcast by leaving a rating or review. Better yet, subscribe for future episodes. That's a million other choices streaming right now. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. We are talking to a forensic odontologist. What is that? They are basically a dentist, a forensic dentist. So they're called in to identify individuals that can't be identified using fingerprints or face recognition. So they'll use dental records or maybe in cases where a victim has bite marks, they can help, you know, I guess, take measurements and imprints of those bite marks and match them to suspects. Like the Richard Ramirez. Remember how his teeth were so jacked up? exactly. So we're talking to Joe. Her name is Joe. So I'm excited. I think this is an interesting one. Yeah, that is interesting. I found that to be when I was watching the Night Stalker or whatever that on Netflix documentary. Mm-hmm. Yep. I thought that part was interesting because I mean, his teeth were sword fighting in there. There was like a lot happening. Like that's hard to say like, oh, that's not him because it's Cause so exact. He has like jacked. Yeah. You put how who else has a mouth like that? Probably. Right. It's like he left a calling card. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah, I wonder how, what if people have like braces and great teeth? Is everyone's teeth that have braces the same? But I guess everyone's mouth is different, like bigger, Yeah, I assume everyone's mouth different. You know, your teeth are bigger than mine. Mine teeth are smaller or like the way that your jaw lines up. You know, if you have an overbite or an underbite or that sort of thing. Or you could be missing teeth, you know, or maybe the way you chew. Well, first of all, I've never had braces. I was always in my life wanted them. Yes, I've always wanted them. No, you don't. They're terrible. I always wanted them. I wanted a retainer. I wanted braces. Never happened. I swear I really wanted braces and or a retainer because everyone else had it. I've always just wanted to have the retainer because I like the clicking sound like when you put it in. Yep. Like click, uh-huh. click, I used click. to play with mine all the time and like <laughs> click it up with my tongue yes. and click it down and click it up. Yeah. I never got that experience. I used to take paper clips and pretend it was a, a retainer. <laughs> oh, well, at least you're creative. You try, you tried to fill that void. Yeah. Or the thing on the milk, you know, like that thing that connects the milk. Yes. I used to like pop. Yes. I used to put that and be like, pretend it was a retainer. <laughs> no, my God. <laughs> Well, enough of this braces talk. Let's just get to it. Let's get Joe on the line. Okay. I'm excited. Joe, so it's pretty simple. Um, You know, first of all, Nikki and I want to say thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join us and chat with us. We're really excited to learn more about what you do. How would you describe what you do in one to two sentences? Well, first of all, thank you guys for for giving me the opportunity to join you today. But um, so what I do, 
So I'm a forensic odontologist and I'm a forensic anthropologist. So basically, I assist the law enforcement, the coroners, uh, medical examiners to find remains, uh, to assess in the trauma of those remains if they show trauma. And we assess in the reconstructions of the events around the death, so how that body end up here if in all the process of decomposition that body has been there and for how long has been there. So basically we are asked about three basic questions that it's uh, who's that person and we will try to address this by the identification. What happened to that person? And you have all the excavation and how we record everything in the scene, the recovery of the remains, and then some observations that we can note in the remains with the trauma, like, like a gunshot or so. And then the third question would be how long this person has been dead. And we try to address this through the time since death estimation or post-mortem interval estimation, which is a very tricky, is a very tricky question that we are asked always. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably a stupid question, but how long can teeth be preserved? Is it almost like bone? Oh, yeah. Actually, they are more uh, resistant than bone. Actually, the enamel is our hardest tissue in our bodies. They preserve like throughout the decomposition, they preserve throughout post-mortem agents that they can damage the bones, and then the teeth normally can be quite preserved. Something that it really hurts teeth and really hurts bone, it's fire. So when when mm. bone and teeth are exposed to fire, they are they are damaged. We have the teeth inside the oral cavity, and they are some kind uh, protected, especially the molars are very protected. So with teeth, they preserve a lot for a long, long time, unless they are damaged by, for instance, fire, that they are then, then enamel is very, very strong, but it's very brittle. So once it breaks, it breaks in very, very small pieces like China. Okay. Well, I could see that. My kids had a broken tooth one time and it was kind of sandy, grainy kind of. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope he was not burned, but... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. But it was just like, well, it was like a baby tooth. So right, I mean, maybe right, it was just right. a little finer than... Correct. Yeah. But yeah, it was just a little bit of a little sandy kind of texture. Yeah, it, yeah, it can happen for various causes. But yeah, uh, I think what damage more the dental tissues and the bone tissue, it's mostly is fire a lot. When there's damage to the teeth like that with fire, are you still able to potentially make any sort of identification? Because do the teeth, do the little, I guess, the sockets where the teeth were, are those still in the gum line? or is it completely unusable? So it depends on the degree of burning. So for the degree of burning, like the severity of burning, let's say, we have mm -hmm. to play with the time that those teeth have been exposed to fire or those bones mm -hmm. have been exposed to fire and also the temperature of that fire. Okay. Right? So depending on what, what is the combination of these two factors, like the time and the temperature, we can have less severity or highest degree or high severity of burning. So let's say in a low degree of burning, we can still do identifications and we can still take some radiographs like in pretty much normal teeth, but normal, I mean, not exposed to fire. 
and we will see like some of the fractures in the teeth that will be because of the fire. And we have to we have to differentiate those ones from the ones that are a real fracture for trauma or so. And that happens ex- mm-hmm. exactly the same thing with bones. So when we have bones that have been exposed to fire in a for a short period of time and not so much temperature, we can we can assess them nearly nearly as we assess bones that are not exposed to fire. The problem comes when they are more distracted, when they are more altered and they change in color. There are some fractures that appear because of the exposure of fire. There are some some dropping in, in the bones especially and in teeth. We can see all these alterations. So the more severity, the more limited information that we have. However, we can mm. still work even with cremains. The identification is going to be highly, highly, highly difficult in cremains, but there are some analyses that we can run in burn remains and especially in cremains that are so useful. But the information that we can release with cremains, like absolutely cremated remains, calcine and grained, let's say, uh, it's very, very limited. When you do dental records, how do you know who the person is? Like I go to the dentist and get my cleaning and they do the x-rays and all that stuff. Do you need to have something to connect that? Like how does that work? So uh, when we find someone that we don't know, we have absolutely no information about who that person might be. The first thing that we do is to reconstruct a biological profile. And we do that um, basically with the anthropological methods and we say okay is that a female or is that a male the range of age that this individual was in between i don't know 30 to 55 uh, years of age at the time of death and maybe in some instances we can say okay it's hispanic ancestry or white ancestry or black ancestry so depending on the cranial features and the postcranial features we can have a broad description of the individual so we give these results of the anthropological study to the authorities and they say okay so we should find someone that that meets all this description, right? So then the law enforcement will provide us with maybe one, two, seven, ten candidates for this identity. And then it's when the odontology takes place to do a one-to-one comparison. So I have these antemortem records, so these remains, and I have to link them with a radiograph, dental records that are written by the doctor that was treating that patient when he or she was alive, and photographs. We can use a lot of things. So I need to see in what degree those two antemortem and postmortem data sets match with each other. And the best thing that we have is the dental treatment because that's very unique and the combination of the dental treatment. But also there are some times that we do not have dental treatment and depending of which anatomical features we can find in that individual, that can be so individualistic as well. And we can sometimes achieve a positive identification, not with dental treatment, but with anatomical features. But dental treatment is quite easy to get a positive ID or an exclusion. With anatomical features, you have to know in which level of individuality they can represent that individual Mm. and, and the combination of all of them. It's what it counts. Have you ever had it to where you can't identify someone at all because there is just no records and any pictures or anything like that? We face that every day. Yeah. 
of course. Oh, okay. And we face that problem when we don't have a more than source of DNA, we don't have fingerprints, and we cannot find any dental records. We face that problem every day, unfortunately, yeah. Especially with cold cases that are like from the 60s, the 70s, that those are the most problematic ones. In that case, if there is a suspect that is no longer living, would you guys ever exhume the body to try to look at the, the dental? Yeah, well, that depends on the case. So if the case has not been properly recorded and we don't have pictures, we don't have odontograms, we don't have x-rays, they can ask mm-hmm. for the exhumation of the body. This is an option that we always try to avoid and see what okay. we have because it's a it's a disturbance. But if it's needed, if it's really needed, then yeah, it it has to be well justified. But if it's needed, we have done that. So and also, when you are studying some remains, you can you can do whatever you want, you can do like molds, molds. um, It's not something that I usually do when I study the remains, what I really focus is on having very good radiographs, very good photographs, very accurate dental return records from the postmortem dental return records. And in some occasions, we can surface scan a cranium, a dentition or so. Is there DNA within the tooth? Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, teeth are a very, very good source of DNA. We take two teeth normally for DNA. And the only thing that you have to pay attention when you are taking a sample for DNA, it, the tooth should not be any decay in that in that tooth. It should not be broken and should not have an, any treatment like root canal and fillings. Because if you have root canal, that means that you have taken off all the blood supplies and the nerve that it's inside the tooth. So a lot of the DNA is in there. So you don't want this type of tooth. The best thing or the best tooth to have for DNA, it's molars because they have a very big pulp cavity where all the nerves and the arteries and the veins are. Or canines, they, they work very well. I've also read online, so I could be wrong, but I've read that part of your work is working with victims that potentially have bite marks and kind of working backwards that way as well. How does that process work? So bite marks have been very controversial here in the U.S. and there's a lot of research that is needed. But whenever you do a bite mark case, you have to be very, very confident that you have the proper training, that you have the proper expertise, and also that you are going to base all your results according the American Board of Forensic Odontology following the the scientific principles and that's when a bite mark examination can work. What you have to avoid at all costs it's not following the protocols not following the guidelines and give like a personal opinion you have to give your professional opinion based on on scientific methods that have been applied and you got the results from. So what happens in bite mark analysis or bite mark examination is that we have an individual that has been beaten and you have the mark of the teeth on the skin of that individual. And then you have to see if these marks or have enough evidentiary value to use them as an evidence. And most of the times, what happens is that the marks do not meet the minimum dense value to be presented mm-hmm. as an evidence. And the times that they do meet all the minimum requirements to admit them as evidence, then you do a study of the different marks that you see in the skin 
and you compare them with the different dentitions of the possible biters. What are the requirements for it to be considered valid? Yeah, so the minimum requirements would be like the picture, it's acceptable that it's not blurry, for instance, that we have a scale where we can see the size of the mark, that the scale is well positioned. And I've been asked this question a lot of times, like, okay, so when do you have the, the perfect picture for a bite mark analysis? It's, unfortunately, it's when the, the victim is dead. So we have all the time and we can take as many pictures we want and all that. When we have a young kid, maybe two, three years old, four years old, uh, that it's in hospital and he or she is alive, but they have to take some pictures of those bite marks, then it's very difficult to get a, a really good picture because the kid is moving. It's not in, in, a, in a very comfortable environment. It's a skirt and, well, you can imagine it's not... It's not an easy task to take this type of pictures. So you always have to be very objective if you can use the picture or not. And then something very important is that nowadays we do not identify the biter. We do exclude or not exclude the biter. All the bite mark examinations that we do, we just, we just can say we cannot exclude this dentition of having caused this pattern injured or we can exclude that one. Why is that? Is that because there's been cases where it hasn't been the person? And so even if it is a full match, you can't say it's them? Well, in the last results of the last research that the forensic odontology scientists have made, and all the controversy of the bite marks, now our behavior towards bite mark aids is to be very conservative. Is your mouth kind of like a fingerprint? Everyone has their own unique patterns and no two are alike? Right. It's more or less the same thing, but there are some times that depending on the antemortem records or if you are thinking about the bite marks, the, the top of the marks, depending on the records that we have to compare two dentitions, there are some times that we cannot have a very conclusive result. So there are some times that our results are inconclusive or that we say we don't have enough evidentiary value in, in these records or we don't have enough dental evidence in this type of record, so we need to use something else. We need to use DNA, we need to use fingerprints. Depending on the case, I mean, I always say in human identification, DNA is not always the answer. Forensic odontology is not always the answer. Fingerprints are not always the answer. So you have to be ready to get all the records possible because you never know how you are going to identify someone. And, and I, I think forensic sciences should be looked at in a very multidisciplinary perspective perspective. So I think the key now is the communication and the good job done by different teams that they are working together for the same goal, no? That it's identifying this person. How many cases are you working on like a day? Does it take you like a week to start to finish one? Um, so it can be very, very different. So there are some cases that I can do it in, in maybe 24 hours. There are some cases that I have to spend a month. There are some other cases that I have to spend like two months. It depends on the case because I tell you, every case is so different. And sometimes you are asking, oh, I need more pictures of this. I need, do you have that? So there's sometimes the analysis that you want to run in those remains are very long. So it depends on the case. There are cases that requires like some hours and cases that requires like some months. So it depends on if it's an identification case, normally it's much, much faster. If it's a bite mark case, I spend a lot of time with, with these cases. <laughs> 
With the bite mark on a living victim, is there like a time frame with it if you're not called within the first, I don't know, 48 hours that it's not viable at all? Because I would imagine the skin starts to like try to heal. So it would more the shape of the bite. So is a time stamp to where it expires? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it expires, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, no, not valid anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, uh, and not only that there with the time we will see different traits of that of that of that injury is that we some if we have the opportunity we want to see those changes throughout the time so when we oh, have the okay. opportunity to see the victim that it's alive and photograph it maybe every day for like a week or for like however the expert consider that's very valuable for us problem is that sometimes we are called time after that the injury has happened and some mm-hmm. other personnel has taken the pictures that's uh, mm-hmm. that's very common so i think the key is to take the proper pictures if you're not calling the odontologist right away and try to to keep up like a record of the evolution of that of that injury. Does every police department have that or are you independent? No, we are independent. And actually there are so many police departments, uh, coroner's offices, sheriff's offices, medical examiners that call us. So whatever they need, they call us and, and then we perform the analysis. There are some agencies, there are some police departments that they have odontologists and anthropologists working there. And there are some others that external consultants so they call them whenever they need it. That depends on, on the law enforcement agency that you're looking. But pretty much we can be contacted by any kind of police department or coroners and medical examiners offices. What do you think the biggest misconception is for your job? Is there something that you think that they assume you can do or that the timeline will be a certain way? What do you usually kind of run into the most? Well, CSI has done some of this. like this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we, we have have the CSI effect and sometimes people think that we can do analysis in five minutes and it takes <laughs> a long time I mean a long time and so uh, it is what it is we, we we need some time to measure the bones we need some time to radiograph the teeth we need some time to photograph them sometimes we see stab bone in the bones or burn teeth or we have to look them in the microscope and we have to think about that injury for a long time so it's it's not only a time that you spend performing the analysis so that's the the technical time that you spend on like measurements and radiographs and all that it's also the time that you think about okay what this image means to me so what's my professional opinion what's the interpretation of this data that I'm getting from all the analysis and that's the most fun thing to do actually because it's a diagnosis so that requires yeah a long time so because of CSI because of bones they think that we can get into a room and say oh look at that oh that's a, that's a male decomposing probably <laughs> yeah he I think he had a girlfriend in the neighborhood and he liked to play tennis <laughs> So we cannot do that. And yeah, we cannot do that. We, we have to be very, very objective and always basing our conclusions in the scientific methods that have been accepted. So some people think that we can do analysis in three seconds, three minutes. And as I say, there are some cases that we need months, depending on the case and how difficult it is. Also yeah. here, we do a very, very comprehensive study of the remains. I don't believe in like, okay, looking at the remains for half 
an hour and okay write your your conclusions and you're good to go this is not the type of practices that that we do here we spend a lot of time looking at the remains and and discussing with each other so it, this is a team effort and it's a challenging task that you perform in each of the cases and and you learn with each of the cases that you do. There are no, no cases that are absolutely equal or similar or, or comparable because it's, each one of them are, are so valuable for learning and, and keep learning, yeah. Do you have to go to court? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So when we have our results and depending on who asks for our expertise, we give them the report and sometimes we have to explain this report and our results in court. Do they train you for that when you're learning how to do that? Well, this is something that, yeah, we train the students here at Mercyhurst with Dr. Dickmatt. We always talk about that. So depending on the program, you can be trained more or less in a realistic perspective. So something that we do here at Mercyhurst is that we expose our students from day one to real cases and everything that implies. So writing a report, giving your expertise, testimony in court. So here, the students are, are exposed from day one. And literally, it's day one. There are some times that we have begin the course and we are called from a case. Okay, everybody the gear on and let's go. So, oh, <laughs> so wow. sometimes it's day one. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that'll make people realize real quick if this is for them or not for them. Uh, yeah, that's something that you really, really, can know the first day that you go and process remains when you have a decomposed body and you have to clean the bones you have to take the pictures you have to spend some time with that body in a very close distance I think it's something that you realize if you want to do that or not (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah I think that's a real crash course and if that's for you yeah I think so (laughs) yeah was that hard for you to do at first or you just got used to it I was always fine and I'm I've been always fine I'm and I'm still fine I don't know I yeah (laughs) I, I yeah I mean I a question that I'm always asked is like, but do you smell? Yeah, I do smell. And I can appreciate the good perfumes. And I do notice the bad smell of certain things. So yes. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I could handle blood, but I don't know if I could handle the smells, smells with the blood. I just could handle it like maybe looking at it on a TV screen. I don't know how up close and personal I can get. So I don't know if I could get past day one. (laughs) I might have to switch gears. Sometimes I had students attending our processing of the body and they got like kind of dizzy and they felt bad and that's okay. I spent some time with them giving water and I say, don't think that this is what we do just because after we process the body, sometimes we can identify the body and that means that we are giving a name to those yeah. remains and the family are contacted and say, yeah, you have the remains of your loved one. And that person can be buried with his or her name. That's great. Yeah. And yeah. And sometimes we have people that have been shot or that have been stabbed and, and they deserve to know what happened to them. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's more than being smelly. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's much more than that. When you look past it, then yeah, it would, that would be easy because you're giving a family and that person a name and a conclusion and what happened instead of just... and, and so Sometimes they don't even have the body. They don't even have the remains because they have not been identified. So having your loved one in a burial or wherever or or cremated or whatever, but knowing where those remains are, it's 
it's a big thing for the grieving process, I think. And, oh, for sure. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and so, so many times that I, I feel so sorry to call someone and say, we, we have the remains of your husband, your brother, your daughter, your whatever. When I say that, I'm always sorry. And I, I feel that so much. But so many people, especially when some time has passed, they all say, no, 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 don't be sorry, please, doctor. It's a relief. And yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But I yeah, tell I you, bet. when I'm processing the body, when I'm measuring the bone, when I'm radiographing the teeth, I do not think about that. All my senses are in like, okay, what is this feature that we can see here? What is this fracture? How is this fracture bended? So these are the things that I'm thinking when I'm in front of the remains. And when I put the remains to rest and I'm at home, then it's when I think about all the, let's say, more the humane part of it. Because that victim and the families deserve that when I'm studying the remains, I have all my senses in the technical aspect of it. I have lots of empathy, but afterwards, when I'm done with my analysis. Yeah, you can compartmentalize it. You can put it away until you need to to bring it out. Yes, because I think it's a show of high respect for those remains. So they deserve me to be like absolutely focused on what those bones show, what those teeth show and and put it all together. To put an ending to their story, which is fantastic, I think, for the families and the person. Yeah, and the person as well. And I'm sure those families thank you and it probably doesn't feel like the right words because it just doesn't seem like enough for what you did for them and the peace that you've brought to them. So what you're doing is just incredible. Right, but we very seldom talk with the families though. Because we release our reports to the coroner, to the medical examiner, and then eventually we can go to court or so. There are very, very special occasions that we speak with families, actually. Have you ever had anybody contact you after that just needed to thank you? Yes, yes. Especially when I was working in Texas in the identification of the potential migrants, the border crossers. I remember two people that called me saying thank you, saying that was beautiful. Yeah, they are very, very nice people. And they had a a big relief. Some of them were waiting to know where those remains were for eight years or so. So. Oh my gosh, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. Is there a case that you've worked that has kind of changed you as a person? I would say there, there are a lot of cases and that they have changed me as a person, basically to be exposed to to people that have passed away and sometimes they are much younger than you. So I really appreciate every moment of my life because you never know when it's going to be ending. (laughs) (laughs) And also every time that I'm an individual, some remains that are younger than me, I always ask, okay, so that person was like, I don't know, 22 years old, right? I always think like, wow, since I was 22, how many things I've done? Wow, I've done these, I've accomplished that. I've traveled there, I've traveled there. Oh my God. And I always say, wow, if I would be dying at the same time as this person, I would not be able to do all these things. And every case teaches you some lessons because you learn from every case with no exception. When I finished, I always end up the cases in the same way that it's thanking those remains for everything that I have learned. And, and as, as we discussed previously, I mean, we have to be exposed to decomposition, to bad news, uh, trauma, all that. So I think that 
everybody that we are doing this job, we love what we do. Otherwise, I don't think it could work. <laughs> well, Nikki, do you want to segue over into some of our fun questions? Yeah, sure. So Joe, we like to kind of end our conversations on a lighter note and just kind of get to know you in a fun, quirky way. So we always ask some little silly questions. Okay. Um, my first question would be, what is your favorite snack? Oh my goodness. Everything that can have chocolate. Anything with chocolate, uh, I'm good. Dark chocolate <laughs> and, or milk chocolate? Any kind of chocolate. I mean, <laughs> any kind. Like anything that has chocolate, I'm in. You're for it. <laughs> You're there. Yeah. <laughs> I always like ask this question because it tells me a story of who you might be. What is something that you hoard or something you collect a lot of? A lot of memories. I collect okay. a lot of memories. Aww. I collect super fun memories. I collect stories, fun stories, incredible stories. Uh, I collect moments. Yeah. Joe, that's like the perfect answer for your personality. That just fits <laughs> you so well. It really does. You're just the sweetest little soul. I just love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, this is my next question. What is your favorite TV show? Any kind of movie. I don't have a TV show because I cannot follow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just too busy for that. Just, so you need to pop in and out when you I, can. Yeah, I cannot follow them up. So I need a movie, a beginning and at the end. And sometimes perfect. Sometimes I, I fall asleep in the middle. I have to say that. <laughs> That's okay. Is there a type of movie that you like? Do you like romantic comedies or horror movies or what do you prefer? Uh, so I... I really like the movies that make you think, like mystery movies that say, oh my God, Th those movies that, maybe they are not always mystery, but those movies that they start with a uh, with story and then you have like, oh, very clear what happened. And then at the end, yep. you, you, you discover that it was like very different story that, that I yeah. like those too. Yeah. Or the ones that are like, you see different stories and then at the end you find out that they are connected actually. So the, this type of movies and actually any kind of comedy, silly comedy, I love a lot. I love a lot. <laughs> yeah. What are some of your hobbies? Oh, my hobbies are like running, swimming and biking. Uh, I do a lot of sports. I, I just love it. I just love it. It's my sports. It's absolutely my drug. I'm absolutely addicted to it. <laughs> I do triathlons. I do open water swimming. And oh, wow. I just, I just love it. And I do... I like do... in the ocean? Yes. I Normally, I do the open water swimmings in the Mediterranean around Spain. Open water sharks don't scare you? No. I'm a, I'm a diver as well. And I've been diving with sharks. And I... No, I, I'm not a... <laughs> you have to be conscious where you are swimming so depending on the on the area you have to be aware that I mean <laughs> there are sharks yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna dive into a great white den in like uh, in Guadalupe uh, I would I would do it with a cage honestly I would do it with a cage oh but gosh. Uh, but not without the cage yeah <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I have to ask because my son, he loves the water. And when he was 10, he asked to get scuba certified. Um, so he, he loves to dive. So I want to know, what's your favorite dive spot that you've ever been to? That's very a very difficult question because I've been diving in so beautiful places. And I have some others in my bucket list. So maybe the Red Sea, it's, it okay. was amazing. 
amazing, amazing. The Red Sea was amazing. And in the Bahamas, I was with, with some sharks and that was super cool, super cool. And then also in the coast of Spain, there are gorgeous corners that you can have caves and oh, it's so beautiful. Well, this has been so fun and we've learned so much. Thank you <laughs> Thank again you. for taking the time this morning. We greatly appreciate you. And I know that the families that you impact greatly appreciate it as well. And they may not be able to always tell you directly thank you, but I know, and I'm sure you know that they are forever grateful for what you've given them. Thank you for your words. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So what'd you think? Interesting. I thought it was interesting. He has so much heart and like purpose and I don't I don't even know the right word but she's an incredible woman I couldn't do it because it's just yeah there's a lot of detail I don't know if I'm that detail yeah. oriented I mean I'm pretty detail oriented but I don't think that I could do it in that context like there's just so much pressure there right you know I don't I don't know I don't think I could do it and then I love what she does for families yeah into that yeah. And see, I think that her ability to be 100% committed to the job and focusing on the task in front of her, I think that that would be really hard for me to separate because if it was like a child or mm -hmm. somebody younger than myself, I mean, the way that she described that, like when you look at someone who died when they're, you know, 20, 22 and you think about how much you've accomplished in your life at your age and how much this person is never going to experience, I mean, that would crumble me. Right? Like, I would be a puddle on the floor. I don't think that I would be able to objectively no. do my job. I would be an emotional mess. Yesterday, I went to breakfast for my friend's birthday, and it was, like, in the morning, and it was all the older crowd, you know, having <laughs> some <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> And I was looking at these couples that are like, I reminded me of Up and I just, I, I, my mind trailed off where I thought it's funny that she was saying that. Cause I literally was just thinking this yesterday. I'm like, my mom's never going to be that old eating breakfast with my dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's not going to be sitting there just like, just going to brereakfast on a Tuesday. It just like, yeah, it was weird. Like my brain just like went to that. Like I looked at their ages and I was thinking she'll never be that old. She'll never be. Yeah. She was robbed of that, yeah. that time of her life yeah. to just. Sit in her rocking chair and rock. Yeah, so with it's not a care in the world. Exactly. So that's why I was thinking when she said that because I was just having that same thought in my own head about my mom. And I can see that where she would have the same thought looking at these people. They just had so much living to do. They had so much more yeah. to, to do. So much more to accomplish. Yep. And like just stupid yep. stuff, you know, like they're, they don't, they can't, they don't have that. That'd be hard. I yep. couldn't do that part. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. And I don't know why I feel this way. But I feel like the emotional pressure is way higher in this occupation than some of the other ones that we've talked about. And I don't know why I feel that way. Maybe it's just because the way that she talked about how she handles that responsibility. I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be because part of her job is the main part would be identifying who this person is and giving mm -hmm. closure to that person. And because I'm telling you, I'm going to be pretty pissed if I'm un unidentified. Like I need my story to end. Like I don't ever right. want to be unidentified. Like I need to be no. done. You want a full closed out chapter. Yeah. I was thinking like 100%. Lovely Bones. Remember that book? Ugh! You know, yes. Where like they couldn't, they didn't know where she was. And then she's just like lingering around like hello you know I no thank you I no. can't that can't be me I can't be the lovely bone all right okay well on to the next right. sounds good okay. talk to you later 
thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at Body to Burial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.